Um, we are in the Psalms. I'm excited about a new series, the Psalms, and the, we've done summer series in the Psalms before. Uh, so this time I went through and looked at the ones we've covered. Not that everyone or anyone would remember the ones we've gone through. I didn't remember, but uh, I wanted to do new ones. So what we're doing is we're looking at one Psalm from each of the books of Psalms. There's five books of Psalms uh, for the next five weeks. Then I'll be on a short break, and then I'll do five in a row again to the five books of the Psalms. Uh, Jason and our guest preachers in the middle will probably also do their Psalms of their choice as well. So it's just a way to make sure we're kind of spreading throughout the different books. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd says this about the Psalms. He says, uh, the simplest description is they are the prayer and praise book of Israel. They are revelations of truth but not abstract, but rather in terms of our human experiences. That's important. We, we get our theology in our heads so much, but we aren't sure what to do with it in the day-to-day -day experiences of life. He goes on to say, the truth revealed is wrought into the emotions, desires, and sufferings of the people of God by the circumstances through which they pass. When you come to a psalm in the Bible, uh, there's often a few designations you can apply to each one as, an, as a reader, as an interpreter of the psalm. And this morning's psalm really does fall under what's called a psalm of orientation. Uh, imagine the fall happened like three weeks ago, and all of us are going, okay, what do we do now? We need to have orient, an orientation meeting. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to be a, a believer in this fallen land? And so Psalm 16 fits into that category. There are problems, but we have God and the title this morning is Longing for Home. Though that word isn't in this psalm, it's certainly in quite a few psalms. Psalm 27, which we use for our, our call to worship. But the concept of safety and security is present in this psalm. In fact, the very first word is, words, preserve me, O God. So there's this sense of the need for safety and preservation. So let's read this together. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for King David and his inspiration to give us this psalm and so many psalms that speak to our heart, Lord. I ask that you would help us in this modern era where we can often be so disconnected from our emotions, uh, from what's going on inside of us, that as we read this psalm this morning, as your, as your children, 
that we'd feel your presence and be able to say with David that there is no good apart from you. Amen. I recently came across a cell phone, an article excuse me, about cell phone use, and the title was Smartphone, The Smartphone is Now the Place Where We Live, anthropologists say. You have to add that because that's the plausibility structure of our culture. Like, it has to be said by a scientist in matter. So they say, anthropologists apparently, this group, that the smartphone is the new place we live. And what he, they go on to say, the article, uh, with it we ignore our friends and family in favor of the device. Again, a major study found. It's like, I wonder how much money that costs. I could have done that study for you. But the quote that stuck out was this. We are like human snails carrying our homes in our pockets. I remember a cartoon when I was a kid of a snail that could crawl into the shell and have, like, security and, like, a tele. I always wanted that. Did anyone, you know, like, they don't really do that. They just kind of, like, I think, retreat and they're kind of slimy. But the idea of a home on your back was appealing. And what the word that really sticks out for me is home. And I, I assume that the writer of this article just assumes all of us are aware of the meaning of that word. We're drawn to the concept of home. So the shocking thought would be that the cell phone would become one. The psalm also, I think, assumed this. We long for home. We long for security. We long for safety. The question before us then is what is your version of home? Where are you going to find it? What is it that we're after? There's a, uh, a woman in Gertrude Stein. She... Um, kind of famous in the early 1900s for having a place in Paris called the Salon. I could say that in French, but I'm not French, so Salon, Salon. And people would come through and kind of, it's like a think tank expressing their art. So like Hemingway spent some time there in his years in Paris. Picasso came through, I believe Toulouse-Lautrec, other artists. And so she's this kind of like magnet for arts. And she wrote an autobiography, and, and you probably have heard the line, but she went home to Oakland, where she's from, to see her child at home, and it was torn down. And instead of saying the home was torn down, she wrote these words. There is no there there. There is no there there. It's fascinating. Oh, okay, that's interesting. The first there makes sense. There is no. And the last one makes sense there. But that middle one, there, there is no there. What is she saying? She's tapping into something. Why does that quote stick in our minds? Because all of us know inherently what she's talking about. What is there? What is that deep longing inside all of us that places it at a child at home or other things? And she's saying it was gone, and it sort of woke her up to the idea that there is no home. And I think this psalm and others, the idea that of the orienting is that God is our home, God is our refuge, but what I want us to recognize is that for many of us, we are running after other places for home. We have the longing. I think you all hopefully can recognize even a hint of it. And we know of God, but the question is, is that who is filling the longing for us? Or are we running after other things? So this psalm of orientation calls us to our true home. Hear, hear this next sentence. All humans, not just Christians... All humans long for home, everyone. And no human will ever be at peace without finding their true home in God through Jesus. So 
yes, I'm speaking to Christians, of course, because only a Christian would want to sit here and listen, here, listen to this. But if you are here and you're like, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm exploring, then I would invite you to recognize your longing for home as well. And I would help ask you to just pay attention as we process this psalm because our hearts are longing for so many other places, but we will not feel that peace. We will not feel that true need met unless Jesus is our home. You'll never find what you're looking for. So let's process this together. Uh, the first thing is what are the characteristics of home? I came across an essay by a fifth grader. They won this essay. It was written so well I had to think the parents probably helped. But uh, here's just the first line. The, the writer, this little boy says, what does home really mean to me? To me, home means not one but many things. But most importantly, I believe that home means is that I believe that home means a secure, cheerful place where you are respected and loved. Not bad, right? He went on to write a lot more stuff, but that was a really good intro. He noticed he didn't bury the lead. He did what you're supposed to do. So all you uh, parents, read these things online and then change the words a little bit. Home is secure, cheerful place. So let's start with security, safety. The psalmist David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And right away, if you're reading the psalms, you need to engage it and go, wait a minute. Like he's recognizing something. He's aware of danger. He's aware of the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. And there is danger. And I think one of the things I'm guilty of and many of us are guilty of in a modern era is we have somehow convinced ourselves that's not true. So that when dangers pop up, we are shocked as if I completely forgot about that reality. And yet, I think for the faithful, we should be always aware of the dangers of this life. And especially the dangers in our own heart. Um, the game of, kids get this, like the game of tag. right? Well, what's so fun about that? Well, there's someone after me. I run like crazy. And where do I go? I get to safety. right? Isn't there a safety in tag? There's a, like a zone where you're safe. But even baseball and softball, if you watched it last night, like, what do you do? You hit a ball and you run to these bases, but what are you trying to get? Home. And what do they say when you get there? You're safe. So we have it in our very games we play. We long for safety. We long for home. We long for res rescue and refuge. But I think oftentimes, if we're honest, we live as if that danger doesn't exist. Imagine, what do you do? You're in a home, you're by yourself, the doors are locked, everything's fine, you hear a noise. All of us go, what? Is there danger? It's, it's in us. Our bodies are aware of this. In fact, I've talked about before, neurobiologists are now talking about the polyvagal theory and how our brain extends into our, our core and it's always on alert. So even when our conscious is not aware, our bodies are kind of scanning the horizon. And in our, in our psalm, he says, in the night also my heart instructs me. If you look at that little footnote, it means it, it's really kidneys. The Hebrews were closer than the Greeks because it's not up here. You feel it here, butterflies in your stomach. Right? You feel danger in your core. And he's saying when I'm safe, my core feels safe. And so I just want us to know that home is where you're safe. That's important. To feel safe must be had in order to live a flourishing life. But secondly, uh, there is, notice in this fifth graders, a uh, cheerful place where you're respected. Now, there's, there's family, like good family. 
And that's, of course, in our passage. I wouldn't have chosen that, by the way, if it wasn't in the passage. Please don't think I read a great essay and thought that's what I'm going to preach. I actually had the points first, found the essay. In our passage, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. This is King David. King David has like a court, and he probably has all these people that say to him how amazing he is. But in this psalm, he's saying, my delight is with the people who are worshipers and followers of God. There's something about community. Uh, Jesus himself says that when he's in, a, in this crowded home and teaching and Mary and, and his brother, her sons, Jesus' brothers, have come to sort of bring him out of that embarrassing situation. And famously, he says, well, these are my mother and my brothers. Now we know he loved Mary to the end. But the point is, whoever is in your um, whoever treats you as family is your family. In, in the Christian church, we are a family. We have a community. We have a connection. Calvin says, this passage, therefore, teaches us that there is no sacrifice more acceptable to God than when we sincerely and heartily connect ourselves with the society of the righteous. And being knit together by the sacred bond of godliness, we cultivate and maintain with them brotherly good will. That's the hope of the Christian community. But it's hard. See, what makes family so effective is it, when you're part of a family, it's not easy. No one says, oh, it's been easy. I never had an argument with a sibling. My mom and dad were perfect. Uh, what, what makes it helpful? Why are we able in a family to, stay, to, to, to feel like there's love and security with all the bickering but we come into the body of Christ, and it's almost like we just have no imagination for that. And I think the answer is permanence. There's a sense in family that no matter what I do, they're not going anywhere. Is that fair? I mean, can we agree to that? I can really say something awful here, and I, I really know that that, I mean, this is where they live. This is where their bed is. This is where the fridge is. They're not going anywhere. At least that's the hope. Now, of course, we know in the modern era that's not always true. But in our passage, David is saying that his love of God and his love of the saints is, is also tied to this idea of permanence. In verse 9, he says, my flesh, or he says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And in verse 10, you will not abandon me. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your, let your Holy One see corruption. He's meditating on the fact that there's a permanence with God and his family. It's an unending reality. These are things we need for home. Have you ever played the game, would you, uh, if you were stuck on a desert island with so-and-so, would you marry them? What are you saying? You're saying, like, well, all other people being not available and me being contained to this little island, well, yeah, I'd marry that person. Right? That's helpful because that's what family is. We're contained with each other. If these 100 people were the only ones that believed in Jesus, I mean, maybe there's 70, I get it. These 3,000 people that you all can't see online, um, I think we would act a little differently. There's no other churches. Everyone out there doesn't believe in God. Maybe there are no other humans even exist. I think we're going to start figuring it out real quick how to have rupture and repair and security and love. But oftentimes we don't do that. In 2 Timothy 4.9, Paul, the guy, says this. 
Demas, I think that's how you pronounce it, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, abandoned me. We want a, a home to be safe. We need to have people that aren't going to abandon us. We need to have family and, and interdependency, and we need to have safety. And there's a fourth thing before I move into sort of the how-tos, etc., is this. The home, this, this presence with God for David, also is where he gets instruction and counsel. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. The church used to be the place for instruction before the internet and 24-hour news. Now, I'm not trying to say to you that I should be what tells you everything you think. That's not what's being said. But the community of believers would be where we would chew on Scripture, chew on the matters of culture, and uh, then we would be able to be equipped to go out into the world and assess the issues and the, and the concerns of the day. And even if it wasn't just the local church, it could be the, the community of Christians, right? It could even be presbyteries and general, it can be larger groups, other churches, other thinkers. And in Jude 3, it says, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That is what we want. That is what we want the church to be. And for David, he's saying, the Lord gives me counsel at night. He instructs me. I have set the Lord before me. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus says, I will send you my spirit in John 14, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Talking there about the apostles who will write the scripture. But it's this promise to all of us as saints that we will have from the Lord through his scripture and through working it out with, uh, with others what it means, the ability to understand the situations in our world. But for many of us, and I get, I'm included, we get caught up in the 24-hour news cycle and social media, and then I come back and go, I'm not sure about this. You all struggle with that. But if we're home, and if God is our home, then I believe we would see that reversed. So th those are what homes are. I'm going to say those four things again. Safety, family, permanence, instruction. But where is it? If that's what a true home is, where is this true home? Um, of course, we know that in this passage, David says right off the bat, you, in you I take refuge. It's the Lord. In verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In the New Testament, Jesus, as he had just washed the disciples' feet, was preparing them. In John 14, he's kind of giving them instruction. And he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And a few verses later in 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip, just like we would have done, says, well, where is, show us the Father. And it, that would be similar to saying, show me the house. Show me this place. Show me what I can't see. And Jesus says famously, uh, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So when we come to where is our home, the answer is with Yahweh. But guess who we can envision when we picture Yahweh now? Jesus. 
He is the vision. He is the image of the invisible God. So when we think of God, certainly we meditate on the Father, as Wilson taught last week so beautifully, and the Spirit. But we're also free and encouraged to think of Jesus who came to earth and showed us in physical representation who God is and where our home is. Is he our home? Is he whom you seek for all of your definition of life? Augustine famously has said, and we've talked about before, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in you, in thee. So the question before us is this. Is this what we are thinking of when we think of home, when we think of security, when we think of safety? In our passage it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That is a very helpful reminder slash strong warning that we are prone to want running after other gods. If you think about what an idol or a god was in the ancient world, it was a, a man-made object that was trying to bring some sense of safety and security, fertility or, or livestock or you know, other things. And so the, the reason this brought sorrow is it didn't meet the requirements that I laid out. The God, the God that they would worship is the same, made out of the same substance the scriptures teach us that they burned on, on the woodpile. And it wouldn't bring any permanence. Where is your true home? Is it permanent? Is what you're after, the things you're seeking for your identity, are these the things that will bring you to what you long for deeply? There's this middle section we haven't read yet in our psalm where David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I've always read that like, oh, David's praising God for his great property. That's sort of how I always read that. And as I started to meditate and read it this time and then read some commentary, I became clear that he is saying with the Levites, remember the Levites, that tribe of priests did not have land. Their chosen portion was God. They didn't have land to, to call their own. And most of us would go, oh, poor Levites. But not David. David's saying, no, no. Yes. Because the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Later in Philippians, you know, you see Paul who says to live is Christ. To die is gain. He doesn't say to live is, you know, doing well at work and having my family and doing all this stuff. And then to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is more Christ. Gain. And so the question before us is, do we believe with David in the psalm of orientation that when we make the Lord our chosen portion, when we agree with the psalmist that, that God is everything, we will be flourish, we will be, have joy, we will have delight? Or are you secretly harboring a suspicion that he's not going to bless you if you don't take care of yourself? Another verse that just sticks out, Galatians 2.20, before you brought this up, Riata. I had already planned this, so I love when God does that. But when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's way of saying, the Lord is my home. He dwells in me and I in him. And everything else is secondary. That's where all of my energy and focus is. In our passage, it says, I have no good apart from you. Let me be very clear theologically. You do have other good things. You have 
so many things you love, and that's fine. The question is, are they gifts from God? Do you see them as gifts from God? Or are they sort of in opposition to God? But David is saying, I have no good apart from you. You're my Lord. You're my home. I ref- you're my refuge. And everything that is in my life, I see now as being something that's a gift from you. So you're the source. You're the highest of these things. You're behind everything. That is our true home. There's a, uh, a, a musical artist. I don't think most of you know, except one person in this sanctuary who knows this person personally, Don Schaffer. Anyone in this sanctuary know Don Schaffer? Oh, two, because they're mom and daughter, mother and daughter. Uh, Don Schaffer, Emily and I, like when we were in college, listened to Waterdeep. If you know who Water, listened to them, we do some of their songs. But they wouldn't sign record labels or something. So they're probably the greatest musicians you've never heard of. Seriously, uh, phenomenal. And there's one song, I think the title of the song is And. A-N-D, And. And it's super, like, abstract at first. You're like, what is, how is that a song? And, and as, it, as it unpacks, you find out that, that every, he says, everything I've ever wondered, you're the one. Right? And it, the lyrics are like, you're the juice and the joints and the motion of life. And is the love that is between God and his beautiful bride or beautiful wife. And has two hands and two feet and a long, lovely sigh. And rose three days after he was crucified. And that's what the, the, what, what the Schaefers are saying is uh, everything you long for, everything you've ever wondered, finds its source in Jesus. So when Jesus is our home, we get everything else thrown in. But when we go after everything else, we get neither. That's a C.S. Lewis quote kind of butchered. But... When we go after all the things we think we're running after, many sorrows will come. And why is that? I'm going to say this before I transition to our final thoughts. Because all the world has to offer is this phrase. And you see this in the, in the best self-help books that are out there. Ready? Have you heard this? What do you want written on your gravestone? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. And the, the thought is, I'm going to say, oh, man, well, I wanted to say, and here's the pause. Let me ask a question before I answer you. Do I still exist? Because if I don't exist, then I don't care. Because I'm not going to be anywhere to know what you craved on my grave. You know? And if I do exist, where will I be? And if I'm in heaven, I still don't care. Because I'm with Jesus. Can your idol, your version of home, the things you pursue other than Jesus, bring to you eternal life? The answer is no. The best thing the world has is what goes on your gravestone. What's going to be on the building you leave behind? Where's your money going? And the gospel says, no, no, no. You have eternity with Jesus. And that gravestone is going to melt away when, when the world changes. Praise the Lord. So how do we do this then? If this is true, if Jesus is our home, if our home is in God and Christ, and everything else, when it's our focus is rubbish, what would be the process in two minutes of how to do that? I'm going to try to be, go kind of quick here. Not really two. It'll be like six. Number one, I love, I read this. One of the reasons I chose this is the last verse. One morning just reading it just pounded me. Uh, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, that God is promising when, he, when we make God our refuge, our home, that there is this path of life even now. 
But what, what makes that stand out is it implies that we have other options, doesn't it? If there is the path of God, I have other options. The question is, what are the other options and why would I choose them? And the answer for me would be because they're, they look a lot easier. I can see how there's like three feet in dirt. I'm going to walk down that one. This one is like a jungle with thorns. I can see the, the mountain where I want to get to, but I don't know. I don't want to go through that. So I'm choosing this one. And I believe the Lord is saying through the Spirit, no, no, no. We're going there. Grab the machete. We're going in. And so what we have then is this reality that we are coming to this psalm with David. David's not bragging. David doesn't write this psalm like, I can't believe it. I just never fear and, and I have no problems. Let me just write this bragging psalm. David is struggling. David is wrestling. So when David writes this psalm and when we come to this song, we come as those who want to go down every other path besides God. And we read this and we read, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And we begin to say, Lord, help me do these things. And then we come to the verse, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. We don't think, good thing I'm not one of them. Me and David got it all together. We think, oh no, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to go other ways. This Wednesday, if you come, this is a shameless plug for Wednesday night. We're going to talk about keeping the heart and what does it mean as a discipline and so that's our conclusion tonight, today, is what does it mean to go home again through keeping our heart and bringing it to the Lord? Um, I read a book, we had a, a book in seminary called, literally the title, You Can Go Home Again. It was a family and marriage counseling class. And uh, so I'm not here recommending the book per se. It's a good one. But the point that the author is making is she starts using genograms you know what those are, anybody? A genogram is like a family tree where you kind of map out your, your family. And she does this in this book for all like these super famous people, like the Rockefellers, like these families, like the Kennedys. And, and what she begins to show is these paths or patterns that drift down through the generations. And what she's trying to say is if we can recognize some of these paths from our own lives, oftentimes we can differentiate and make adjustments. Well, I would say that's true, but that's exactly what I think God calls us to do, is to recognize the sorrows that others are running after and to begin to name those and then begin to say, wait a minute, where am I going down that path myself? Now, the power from this comes from the fact that you are already safe. Romans 8.1. Right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are safe. So now in my safety, I can begin to look at my own life and go, what am I doing that's going down these wrong paths? What am I hoping in? What am I after? And you have to name those things. It's amazing how often we simply hope that we hear this information, we love it, and we can get up and go right back into the world and it's just going to flow smoothly. The question is this. Are you aware of the other homes you chase after? Are you aware of the way your actual family home and the, and, the, and the ways you've been brought up still affects you presently? William Faulkner famously said, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. 
So the question for us is, when we go to the Lord and we say, I want to make you my home, are we confessing the things that we're running to, or are we just simply sort of doing it out of willpower? But how do we do that? We, we confess our sin. We tell the Lord all the things we're running after. But then here's the most beautiful aspect of the Psalms that I love, is they train you by repeating them over and over Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Parallel line, I say to the Lord, quote, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Say that. Praise him. Tell him. In your times of devotion, when we come into corporate worship, speak to the Lord. Say to the Lord, you are my chosen portion. Read that out loud. Speak it out loud. Sing it if you want to. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And then I also, my heart instructs me. This psalm is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of a person saying, this is true. I'm saying it to the Lord. And I'm asking that the Spirit will change my heart as I read this truth in light of all the realities and the riches of who Christ is and who God is. Does that make sense? Romans 8 15 to 16, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have confidence because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We can now pray to this God who is our God. He's made his home in us and our home in him. And we can begin to separate from all the ways our bodies, our flesh are trying to go one way by naming them, confessing them, and praising him. And he will go with us as we move into each new day. It's a daily process, daily going before the Lord, a daily examining of the previous day and the wrong paths and confessing, and in the present day saying, Lord, these truths I proclaim and they are true because of what you have done. Is that what we're interested in? Do we want to make the Lord our home? I believe if you will, I believe you can say faithfully with verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for dwelling in us, for making your home in us and for preparing a home for us in eternity so that, Lord, the gravestone is not our final hope. Lord, you led David to pray and praise you that you will not abandon him to hell or let him see corruption, and that is what we believe as well. We know that because we are in you, we will never see the grave. We will never see hell. We praise you for that. Lord, let that truth be so burning in our soul that any other promise apart from you will look so weak and futile. Teach us to pay attention to all the things that clamor for our attention apart from you. Teach us to run only to you and to see that we have no good apart from you. And help us to understand that there are pleasures and joy and delight when we walk with you. Teach us to believe that even though the enemy tries to convince us otherwise. For your glory. Amen.